Um, as we move into this, though, for the next couple months, I think it's worth our time here at the beginning to take a few minutes and just sort of introduce the book of Psalms and what it's about and all of us get on the same page so that we can really understand it and appreciate it together. So, so the Bible, this is one big book, right? Like it looks like one big book. There's lots of commentary in here as well, but it's one big book that's really made up of a bunch of little books, okay? So there's 66 books in the Bible, and the book of Psalms is one of those books. And the books in the Bible are not all the same. Like, they're, they're different uh, genres of literature, right? And so you have some books that tell history. They're called historical books. You have some books that, that tell a lot of prophecy. God speaking through people uh, and them sharing what God said, right? You have other books that are uh, letters to people. You know, one guy writing to another guy or one guy writing to a group of people to a church. You have other books that are wisdom books. And then you have books that are poetry, books that are poetical books. And the book of Psalms is a book of poetry. Anybody a poet in here? Yeah, Ruth? I have great respect for you. I, too, am a bit of a poet. I don't know if you guys knew this or not. Actually, I, I wrote one poem when I was in high school about my car, my 1985 Chevy Celebrity. You ever seen one of those? Throw that up there. This is not an actual picture, but it looked strikingly similar to that. And so um, I, I thought, you know, as we talk about poetry and jumping into a poetical book in the Bible, I, I brought it. If you'd like me to yeah. read it, yeah, <laughs> do that. Is it in a frame because it's a fine work of art? Maybe, maybe. <laughs> but I, I thought maybe we could get some mood lighting in here. Yeah. I brought my hipster beret as well. <laughs> and, I'll just, and I'll just do this for you, okay? <laughs> So, so that's a Chevy celebrity. I, the, the name of my, the title of my um, poem is The Caged Celebrity. The Caged Celebrity by Jeff Martell, number 30. That was my basketball number. <laughs> it sits so innocently in the driveway, just waiting, watching all the little children play. Only a few understand all the powers in thee, but all are afraid of the caged celebrity. When I'm stopped at a light and someone wants to race, I smile and smirk as I stare in the face, as I stare at his face. The light turns green, I step on the gas, the celebrity takes off ever so fast. Mach one, then two, then three, come as I proceed. I must be cautious as I approach light speed. <laughs> the celebrity's purr is like that of a cat, but get in its way and it will squash you flat. I remember one time a thief tried to steal it. He hit it and hit it, but couldn't get in it. The beast let out a roar that seemed to never cease. Now that thief lays flat and eternally rests in peace. <laughs> a bit of advice as I come to an end. Follow it strictly. This one should, you should never bend. If you encounter this car, whether on land, air, or sea, always stay on the good side of the caged celebrity. Ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> yes. I'm a dork, I know. <laughs> poetry, poetry. So the book of Psalms is poetry as well. It's a little different than 
modern day works of art like the kids celebrity right but no less powerful so I thought what I do is uh, as we dig into the book a little bit um, just kind of pull out some things here for us to consider as we talk about the book of Psalms and what Hebrew poetry is like so the first thing um, is it's written in Hebrew right the book of Psalms originally was written in Hebrew of course we have it translated into English but originally it was in Hebrew and in Hebrew uh, it's, it's interesting I was reading about this this week it's hard for theologians to, to know for 100% certain, but they think that there is no like rhyme or meter in Hebrew poetry. And what I mean by that is like, well, you know what rhyming means, but meter's like Jack and Jill went up the hill to fetch a pail of water, right? That's, Hebrew poetry is not like that. It doesn't have rhyme. It doesn't have meter, at least not intentionally. And the book of Psalms specifically was written by multiple authors. So you have David, you have Asaph, you have the sons of Korah, you have uh, uh, Solomon, Moses, Ethan, uh, He-Man, Skeletor, <laughs> man at all, no, I'm just kidding, Heman, I don't know, it's my, it's my youth, He-Man. It's also broken up into five books, so the book of Psalms is broken up into five books, so originally it was probably five shorter books that uh, these guys compiled together to give us what the book of Psalms looks like today, and so you can see the breakdown there. Most of them, so the longest there is, what, 44 chapters, the shortest one is, I think there's a couple that are 16, 17 chapters there, but they're kind of broken down into those books, and the authors spread out throughout that, and there's different types of Psalms as well in the book, so 150 Psalms, there's a lot of different types of them. So we have royal psalms that are describing sort of the, the power and kingliness of God. We have songs, psalms of lament that describe the psalmist's pain and struggle and hardship. We looked at some of those during our pain and suffering series. We have what's called imprecatory psalms, which is a word we don't use much today, but these are the ones that are like calling for God to punish the unjust. God, wipe them out. Destroy my adversaries. We're actually going to look at one of those next week. We have psalms of thanksgiving thanksgiving in there, you know, offering God deep praise and thanks for his provision in the psalmist's life. We have pilgrimage psalms, which is kind of hard for us to get because we're not ancient Israelites, but these were psalms that were celebrating God as they traveled to Jerusalem to celebrate the different feasts that they had to celebrate. There's enthronement psalms describing the majesty uh, and the sovereignty and the awesomeness of God. And then there's wisdom psalms, and they, these are the ones that kind of give us a real practical practical um, uh, challenge for godly living. They kind of practically show us how to live as followers of God. And so when we, this is actually what Psalm number one is a wisdom psalm, which we're going to jump into here in a second. When we read the Psalms, this is important, God is the focus of the Psalms. A lot of times, especially in our culture, we live in a pretty egocentric culture, right? In our culture, like, I read something, and if it's not immediately applicable to my life, I put it down and I go on to the rest, to the next thing, right? Psalms is different. Psalms isn't about me. It's about God. God is the focus. I'm not the focus. Now, there's a lot that we can learn from them in our lives, but the center and focus of the Psalms is God. And one thing that's clear as you read the book of Psalms is that God has a plan. You see this all throughout. No matter what people are going through, the kind of the tone, the ether of the Psalms, God has a plan through these, which is good for us to remember, right? Like sometimes our life isn't turning out the way that we wanted it to be, and we go, God, what's going on? Do you even care? God has a plan that's clear in the Psalms for our lives and for the world. And anyone who rejects his plan is seen as being among the evil or among the wicked, which we're going to look at here in a few minutes. 
Um, also, the psalmist wants us, so the psalmist, these are prayers, I'll talk about this in a second too, they're prayers to God, but the reason for writing these prayers down is so that the reader becomes more godlike in their life, so that, which is wisdom. You and I becoming more godly is wisdom. It's wise for us to become godly, to live godly lives. And so that's the heart of the psalmist, that you and I would take this stuff and that we would apply it to our lives. And then this is something that's, as I talk about prayer, it's really important to, to be aware of. These are people's prayers to God. I mean, that's what the psalms really are. I was having a conversation with a friend of mine this past week, and we we're, we're kind of just discussing that. And, and this, is, this is what we concluded. I wrote it down. I thought it was, a, it was just an interesting thought. The psalms are a collection of people's divinely inspired prayers to God that God then uses for instruction and communication to us. Did you get that? The Psalms are a, a compilation, a collection of people's divinely inspired prayers to him, which God then uses as instruction and communication to us. Which is interesting. It's just sort of a different, a different thought. That's what the Psalms are. And speaking of prayer, can I say this? The Psalms can be really, really powerful prayers for us too. Psalms can be really powerful prayers. So, you know, a psalm that David writes to God is David's prayer to God. But when you and I take that psalm and we make it personal, we take that prayer and we make it personal, praying back that psalm to God can be a really, really powerful habit for us, especially if we're somebody that's not been in the habit of prayer. Or maybe we fumble with our words, like, I don't even know what I'm supposed to say to God. I don't even know how to do that. Use the psalms, make them personal, and use them as prayers back out. I'll give you an example. Psalm 23, probably the most famous psalm in the Bible. We talked last week about Jesus as our good shepherd, right? Here's, this is the psalm about the good shepherd. You are, so this is how we do it. Psalm 23, this is how I would do it. Lord, you are my shepherd. I lack nothing. You make me lie down in green pastures. You lead me beside quiet waters. You refresh my soul. You guide me along the right paths for your name's sake. Even though I walk through the darkest valley, I'll fear no evil because you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely your goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in your house forever. So you take this psalm that David writes and you make it very personal to you and you pray that back to God. I really encourage you, as you're going through this, if you choose to read through the psalms this summer, I really encourage you to take some of that and incorporate that into your prayer time. You know, pray these psalms that you're reading back to God. It's a powerful habit. So one last thing. Sometimes we can be tempted to, to read the Psalms or really any other book in the Bible and, and have this approach. Like, well, to me it means da-da-da-da-da. You know, I read it, and to me, well, here's how I take that. I understand that is God saying he's a big fluffy cat that likes to be petted or something, or whatever it is, right? Guys, that's, I don't determine the meaning of the psalm. This is important. I don't determine the meaning. I discover the meaning of the psalm. And this is true for the rest of the Bible as well. Sometimes with more metaphorical, poetic texts in the Bible, we can especially do this. Like, well, here's what it means to me. Listen, I don't determine the meaning of the psalm or any other text in the Bible. What I do is I discover the meaning. It's not about what the psalms mean to me. It's what the psalms mean for me. It's really important. We can get this wrong. I don't, I, the interpretation doesn't lie in me. There's a meaning to it. I discover what that means and then I apply it to my life. What does it mean for me? So I dig into it and I go, yeah, I need to get into the author's brain. What does he mean by this? Well, he said this. Oh, I get it. Okay, now how do I apply that to my life? 
That's what we do with Psalms. That's what we do with any other book in the Bible. Very, very important. Okay, so that's a little bit of background on the book of Psalms. I want to jump into the first Psalm together and spend some time there. And we'll kind of flesh out some of these characteristics of the book in general as we go as well. So if you've got a Bible, flip it open to Psalm chapter 1. Use your phone, whatever it is. If you don't have a Bible, by the way, we've got a whole table full of them back there. Trent is armed and ready with a Bible to give to you right now. So if you raise your hand, I'll give it to you. But it's Psalm number one in the church Bibles. It's page 431. Psalm one's interesting. So this is one of those wisdom psalms that I was talking about. It gives us practical instruction on how to live a godly life. And Psalm one really sets the stage for the rest of the book of Psalms. It's almost like the prologue for the rest of the book of Psalms. Remember we said that the author of the book of Psalms, their desire as they wrote down their prayer to God is to make us, the reader, more godlike, right? And so what Psalm 1 does is it makes a distinction between the righteous and the wicked. It makes a distinction between the righteous and the godly and the wicked and the ungodly. And so as we read it, I want you to notice two things. We're going to dig into it here in a second. But before we do, I want you to notice two things. Keep two things in mind. First of all, there's no third option. There's no third option. And, and this is a little foreign to us in, in our culture, in our society. Like, you, in God's eyes, you're either righteous or you're wicked. There's no pretty good or kind of bad. There's one or the other. Okay? So that's the first thing. The second thing, the end result of being righteous is blessing and prosperity. We'll talk about what that means. And the end result of being wicked is destruction. So there's, there's two options. You'll see it here in a second. There's two options. We may want more. We may want more gray, right? But in God's eyes, there's two options. We fall into one of two categories. Either we're on the side of righteousness... And, the, and the, the, the result, the end result of righteousness is blessing and prosperity or on the side of wickedness. And the end result is destruction. So keep that in mind. Let's look at it. Psalm 1, starting in verse 1. So this is what the psalm writer says. He says, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way that sinners take or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. Verse 4, not so the wicked. They're like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. I had a friend growing up who, uh, great guy. Like, he was my first friend, actually. So we lived on one side of the trailer, it's trailer park, and he moved into the trailer park when I was uh, like two years old. And so we were best friends all the time. We were kids, still friends today. Just, just a good, now we were boys, you know, like boys do stupid things and get in a little trouble here and there, right? So we're boys, but like good kids, right? So then I had this other guy in the, in the trailer park, another friend, who was a little bit older. And we kind of looked up to him. You know, he's older. He's maybe four or five years older than me. And we looked up to him. We thought he was so cool. And he wasn't a bad kid either. Like, he was not a bad kid. 
But when he got into high school, he had this sort of rebellious time, you know, where he started kind of doing, he started being like a bad, a little bit of a bad influence on some of us. And so he, when he was in high school, we were in middle school. So I remember one day at my house, and I wasn't with them. I was, uh, I was playing basketball, actually, in like the little parking lot by my house. And uh, these two guys were up behind, behind our house. We had like this field. We called it the weeds. We, we had this field was like overgrown brush and little trees and that sort of thing. And in the back of the field was a big hill that went up to 224, actually. So it went up to a pretty busy road, okay? And so they were hanging out, and they were... Uh, playing together, I guess, and the older kid pulls out a lighter, and he's like, I'm going to light some fires, and my, my buddy, the younger one, was like, what, what are you doing, what are you talking about, you know? he goes down, he lights a fire, and he goes, I'm not putting it out, and so the younger one, my buddy, like, goes and stomps on it, put it out, he's like, all right, he lights another one, I'm like, I ain't putting it out. My buddy goes, and he's like, stop it, you know, he like goes and stomps on it and puts it out. And this went on for a time until at some point my buddy, the younger one's like, I'm not putting another one out if you do it again. I'm not putting it out. So I was like, oh yeah? Lights another fire. And it's like a stalemate, you know? Like they're like looking at each other. No one's moving. The fire's starting to spread. It was dry season, I guess. Oh, fire's starting to spread. And it gets bigger and bigger. And then all of a sudden, I don't know who flinched first. I don't know who gave first. But all of a sudden, they start trying to stomp it out, and it's too big. And it gets out of control. And it burns up, like, the part of the field. And then it goes up the hill <laughs> to the road. And so I remember I was playing basketball. I was playing basketball. And I was taking a shot. And I look over. I'm like, the hill's on fire. What in the world, right? And so at some point, I don't, you know, it was behind my parents' house. So at some point, my parents are questioning my friend the younger one, and I don't, you know, I don't remember all he was saying, but I remember him being like, I didn't want to do it, you know, like he's lighting the fire, and, he, and I had to put it out, and then it got, I didn't want to put it out anymore, I didn't want to make him stop, and then it just got big, and he's like crying, all that stuff, and I think about the older guy, I think he wasn't a terrible kid, but this is a classic example of bad company corrupting good character, right? Like, my buddy would not have done that on his own, but he was kind of corrupted. He got in trouble because of this older kid's, this, the rebellious kid's influence on his life, right? Look back at our psalm. Look back at verse 1. Look at what it says. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked, or stand in the way that sinners take, or sit in the company of mockers. What's the psalmist talking about there? Well, he's talking about the dangers of bad company corrupting good character. And you see the progression here, right? In this walk, stand, sit, right? There's a progression. Walk, stand, sit. With the wicked, with the sinners, with the mockers. One thing in Hebrew poetry that's significant is parallelism. You see this a lot of times. So the psalmist will say something, and then in the very next line, he'll say almost the exact same thing in a little bit different way. It's called parallelism. Well, this is a sort of parallel progression progression here that the psalmist has with the wicked, with the sinners, with the mockers, which really are all three names for the same people, right? Like although that's the same person, the wicked, the sinners, the mockers. So what does this mean? Like what is the psalmist getting at here? Well, a, a theologian named uh, Willem van Gemmeren says it this way. He says, these three descriptions do not represent three kinds of activities of the wicked or a climactic development from walking to sitting or an intensification in the depraved activities of the wicked. Instead, the parallelism is synonymous. 
and profoundly portrays the totality of evil. What does that mean? It means there's no blessing in evil and godlessness. There's, There's no blessing in it. In the totality of evil, there's no blessing. A little bit of it, a lot of it, there's no blessing that comes from it. In fact, it's just the opposite. It corrupts us, right? When we engage with evil, when we engage with, with sin, there's no blessing that God gives. That's kind of common sense. We get that. But it's not just a lack of blessing. It actually corrupts us. We won't be considered blessed by God when we live our lives with and as the wicked, the sinner, the mockers, the godless. In fact, as we see in the next verses, when we live our lives that way, we're in deep, deep trouble because the wicked and the mockers and the godless are contrasted with the righteous. Look back at verse 1. Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the company of the mockers. You'll be corrupted if you do, right? Verse 2. But whose delight is in the law of the Lord and who meditates on his law day and night. That person, get, get this image in your mind, that person is like a tree planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. Whatever they do prospers. What does that mean? It means those that are accounted among the wicked aren't blessed by God, but those who delight in him and his ways and his law are like a tree. Like, get that image in your mind. It's like a tree planted by lots of water where it has all of the water and everything that it needs. Now, when it says that, you know, this tree, you'll be planted like a tree that that yields fruit, whose leaf doesn't wither, who always prospers, has everything it needs, it doesn't mean that the righteous will have a good, easy life, right? Where we have everything that we need and everything goes exactly as planned and we never have any problems and we're going to get everything that we want. Not just what we need, but everything that we want. Is that what that means? No. Heck no, right? I mean, we just did this series on pain and suffering. We just spent five weeks going, man, life is not easy as a follower of Jesus. And you look in the Bible at people that follow Jesus and none of them had easy lives. When we're counted among the righteous, it doesn't mean that life's going to be easy. It doesn't mean that life's going to be good. So what does he mean here? Like, is he making the claim that those who delight in the Lord will always have prosperous lives? No. What does he mean? Well, a guy named Paul in the Bible really gave us a key to understanding this in Philippians chapter 4. So Paul was a guy who had times of, like, incredible privilege and blessing and plenty. And he was also a guy who had times of incredible struggle, right, and, and having very, very little. And this is what he said. It's Philippians chapter 4, verse 12. We'll throw it up on the screen. He said, I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I've learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry. I've learned the secret, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. Here's the secret. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. What does he mean? Like, what's, what's the secret to you and I being content, to living a successful life, to being, whether we're prosperous or whether we're in want? What's the key? God, right? I can do all things through him, through Christ who gives me strength. More specifically, Jesus, right? Yielding fruit in our lives, not withering, prosperity. It's not primarily about earthly things. It's not primarily about stuff. It's about God. 
See, we can get this really backwards. You know, in our, in our, I love our culture, I love our country, but in our capitalistic culture, we can look at the word prosperity and think materialism, right? God is going to, if I follow, if I'm counted among the righteous and I'm a follower of God, he's going to bless me. I'm going to have plenty of money. I'm not going to have any struggles, right? I'm going to always have a good job. I'm never going to be out of work. I'm always going to be provided for. I would really challenge you to not understand this, particularly these verses, you know, this, this tree planted by streams of water, whatever they do prosper, to not understand it, to not interpret it in a very materialistic way. I think it's about having everything that we need prospering spiritually much more than it is about prospering materialistically or physically. Now, often in life, you know, God blesses, when we follow him, he also blesses us in some material ways too. Like he takes care of us. He provides for us. You know, when somebody's a follower of Jesus and they're not an arrogant jerk, other people like them, right? Like sometimes there's many blessings when we actually are following Jesus, many earthly blessings. But it's him who changes our perspective. It's him who changes everything for us. Like he's the deciding factor. It's him that makes us content. It's him that makes us process, prosperous. It's all because of him. Like he's the deciding factor. He is what makes us prosperous. That's so important. Which, by the way, whether we're following him and with him or not, is the only real difference between the wicked, sinner, mocker, and the righteous. This is the only real difference. Remember right before we read this psalm, I said, notice we all fall into one of those two categories, right? We're either counted among the righteous or we're counted among the wicked. And there's no third option for us. Let me ask you a question. When you think of wickedness, like in your mind, when you think of wickedness, what do you think of? Just let your mind go for a second. Don't answer out loud, but just think about it. When you think of wicked, what do you think? I'll tell you what I think of. I think of, like, Hitler. Hitler was wicked. He did wicked, terrible things to people, killing millions of people. When I think of wicked, I think of, uh, of Joseph Kony. You heard of him? And the Lord's Resistance Army and what he's doing in Africa. Just atrocious, terrible, evil things. Mutilating and killing people. When I think of wicked, I think about that. When I think of wicked, I think about people who steal little children, little boys and girls, and traffic them to others and make them do terrible things. That's what I think of when I think of wicked. I think of the rapist. I think of the child molester, right? And all those things are wicked, for sure. And God hates all those things. But listen, those things are not what makes us wicked in God's eyes. This is so important. Those things are not what make us wicked in God's eyes. They're the result of being wicked. Those things are the result of being wicked. Ultimately, there's one thing that makes us either wicked or righteous. What do we do with God? Ultimately, there's one thing that makes us either on this side or this side. And it all boils down to what do we do with God. See, the wicked aren't just the people who do overtly wicked things. It's also the soccer mom who genuinely loves her kids but is apart from Jesus. It's the kid in your class who wins the citizenship award and is a pretty nice kid but is apart from Jesus. It's the coworker who, who plans birthday parties for other coworkers just out of the kindness of their heart, but is apart from Jesus. It's the, the person who donates to, to back them to the food pantry because they care about poverty, but are apart from Jesus. It's the people that sit in church 
and serve and give but are apart from Jesus. Why? Like why? Those, those, things, those things aren't wicked. Why, would the, why are those people considered wicked before God? Because us being considered wicked isn't actually about our actions at all. This is so important because we get this so wrong. It's not actually about our actions at all. And vice versa, us being considered righteous by God isn't primarily, isn't at all about our actions either. What determines our status of being righteous or wicked is one thing. Jesus. What do I do with Jesus? That's the determining factor. And guys, that we can get this. Churches have got this wrong for years and years and years and it's hurt so many people because we think to be made right with God, to be made righteous in his eyes, I got to do really good things. I got to please him. I got to live a perfect life. No. It's what we do with Jesus. It's actually not about our actions at all. See, in and of ourselves, our righteousness, as Isaiah says, our righteousness is like filthy rags compared to the righteousness of God. At my core, see if you can relate to this, at my core, in my heart, I'm not good. I'm actually really selfish. I'm actually really prideful, sinful. And what we need is somebody who will fundamentally change us from the inside And guys, that's the gospel. Like, that's what Jesus came to do. He came to make us righteous. That's what he does. That's the reason for the cross. Look back at our psalm. Actually, let me just paraphrase verse 2 of our psalm. Basically saying, blessed is the one who delights in the Lord and his law and his ways. That's basically what it says. Blessed is the one who delights in the Lord and his law and his ways. The one who's connected to him, right? He's the one who's blessed. He's the one who's righteous. The person about whom God is the most important thing. Think about your life. Can you say that in your life? I don't mean that in any sort of condemning way. But this is what differentiates the righteous from the wicked. It seems like two extremes, and it is. But the differentiating factor is, is Jesus the most important thing in my life? I love my family. I love you guys. I love what I get to do. That Jesus is the most important thing in my life. That's the spot that only he is allowed to be in if we call ourselves followers of him. And when we do, when we put him in that spot, we're like a tree, right? Planted by streams of water, yielding fruit in season. Our leaf never fades. And we're prosperous and content. What we do, then, is a result of that. What we do doesn't earn us one or the other. He's a really bad person. He must be going to hell. He's a really good person. He must be going to heaven. That's what we think. What we do then is a result of the choice we make. I love Jesus. He's the most important thing about me. And he's changing me. And he's making me more like him. Right? Look at the very last part of the psalm, verse 4. So he's talking about, you know, the righteous and they'll be like trees, right? And then he says, not so the wicked. They're like chaff that the wind blows away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord watches over the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked leads to destruction. So how does this end? Well, not well for the wicked, right? 
not well for the wicked, for those who have chosen to not associate with God, to, who get their counsel elsewhere, their end is destruction. It's very clear. Like whether we accept it or not, whether we believe it or not, the Bible is very clear with this. We're on one side or the other. Righteousness, which the result is blessing and prosperity. Or wickedness, and the result is destruction. I've, I've fortunately never had a chance to see a tornado like firsthand, you know. But I've seen lots of videos and lots of pictures of them. And I look at a tornado. Tornadoes are like the most awesome thing on the planet to me. You know, like the sheer power. They pick up cars and throw them all over the place. And just like the power, the, the destructive power of a tornado. That's what the fate of the wicked reminds me of. Being blown away by the destructive force of a tornado. Now, whether the tornado is God himself or just the results of living a wicked life, I don't know. But I know this. Judgment is coming. And, and I, get it, I get it. It makes us uncomfortable to talk about that. Maybe it's not socially acceptable. But guys, the Bible is so clear. Like there's a, there's a judgment that's coming for each and every one of us. And the judgment is by God. He says the wicked won't stand. They won't stand. They'll be blown away like chaff. Those that have chosen not to associate with God, they're still infected, right? They're still infected with the wickedness and sin, just like all of us who are now followers of Jesus used to be as well. It's an infection. But for the righteous, judgment is actually a wonderful experience. Because we're protected. Look at what it says at the end of verse, uh, the beginning of verse six. The Lord watches over the way of the of the righteous. Right? For the righteous, judgment is actually a beautiful experience, because we get a chance to be watched over and then be with our good Father, with our divine Daddy, we who we know and love, and who knows us and loves us. Guys, can I just be really clear and direct? Like all of us. Some of you have heard this lots of times. I encourage you to think about this anew. All of us on this planet are born into lives that are in serious trouble. Like every single one of us is born with this infection called sin. It's like, it's like an infection that every single one of us is born with. And it's eating us away on the inside. It's eating, and sometimes we could suppress it, right? And we could actually be pretty good and not act very sinful. But it's affecting everything in us. It affects what I think, what I say, what I feel, what I do. It affects everything, right? Sometimes we could suppress it, but it's still there. But God sent Jesus as the cure. Like, we, we're infected. But God sent Jesus as, like, this cure to change us from the inside out. I like the needle. Because it goes inside of us. And it heals us from the inside out. And it's slowly, right? It does it over time. But it changes us. And I become more like Jesus. I become more like him. And the infection that has consumed my life, that has consumed every part of my life, is healed. Because of him. Because of the cure. But he doesn't force us to take it. He offers it to us. He gives us freedom to take the cure or not take the cure. And he so deeply desires that we receive it. He's, even in spite of our wickedness, in, in spite of the disgustingness of our infection, 
It doesn't repulse him from us. He desires us to be healed. He desires us to be made right. Our wickedness actually breaks his heart. That's the love that he has for us. You may disagree with me. You may think I'm naive, and that's okay. But I believe with every fiber of my being that Jesus is the answer to every problem that we have. And that sounds trite, that sounds churchy, and I don't mean it that way. Maybe it sounds very simplistic, and it is. But if he doesn't heal us and help us with whatever problem, change whatever situation we're in, he will change us and help us walk through whatever he's leading us through. Like, he changes us. Every part of us, every issue, every struggle, every problem that we have. Maybe I have a problem forgiving somebody. I've been hurt. I'm having trouble forgiving them. He changes that in us. The answer to to a godly, contented life is not try real hard. It's love Jesus. It's make him front and center in our lives. And when we do that, it changes everything. So guys, can I, can I just, I don't know where a lot of you are at in your life, but can I just challenge you to consider this, to consider Jesus, to consider what the Bible says? It's like, there's no middle ground. We choose. We're either all in with him, right? He's front and center in our lives, or we're not. And we're righteous. We're made righteous by him from the inside out, not by anything we do, but by what he's done already for us in Jesus and the, and the result, the eternity of the righteous is blessing, is prosperity, is eternity with God. And the other alternative is wickedness. And the result of wickedness is destruction. May we be people that choose righteousness. May we be people that choose Jesus. And as we do, maybe you sit here tonight and you've been a Christian for a long time. Here's my challenge to you. You got the cure. You got the cure in the middle of a world that is absolutely infected with sin. All over the place. What are you doing with the cure? Do we look at people and go, ew, look at their lives, disgusting, sinful, infected. Or do we go, or do we act like a doctor? And we go, no, I want to help with the infection. I, I have the answer. I have what's healing right here. Who in your life needs that? Allow the Lord to bring them to mind.